Welcome back to Pod Save the World. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Ben Rhodes. Ben, welcome back to uh, the West Coast Heat Dome. I'm not sure we're technically under it, but uh, it was it was 98 in New York. Uh, when I okay, uh, so, so, so you had your own heat this dome. Feels, uh, this feels a little bit better than that, but it's still, yeah, it's kind of hot. Yeah, I don't know about you, but uh, you know, reports of like 117 degrees in Seattle or Portland or Canada, like that, that, that gets me to like the existential dread uh, feeling sometimes. Yeah, we're gonna, have to, we're gonna have to bring some more uh, climate content onto this podcast. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like we're gonna get some more climate content. Yeah, I'm gonna move from I'm gonna move from authoritarianism to climate change, Tommy. Just I uh, love that one 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 cheerful subject to the next. Yeah, I do. Well, we'll we'll spare everyone on the show the uh, the infrastructure conversation that we've been having on Pods of America uh, today. We got a lot of good stuff though. We're gonna talk about news out of Afghanistan, the treatment of indigenous kids in Canada, news about Jamal Khashoggi's murder, the international fight for LGBT rights, uh, some Russian mercenaries in Africa. Apparently, we'll talk about the civil war in Ethiopia, and then President Biden's decision to again launch airstrikes uh, in the Iraq Syria area, and some COVID news. And then Ben, we have some quicker headlines out of Japan. North Korea and outer space because it's mm. time to talk about UFOs. Wow. I've never been more excited to broach yeah. a subject with you. And then finally, a little sports minute. And uh, I was hoping we could vote on the dumbest story of the week. I'm eager to hear your thoughts on these two options. We're basically a weather report away from being the local news here, Ben. Although I <laughs> talked about the weather to start. So maybe we are the local news. We got it. We got it. Oh, good for us. Uh, then uh, stick around for my interview with former U.S. ambassador to the U.K. and to Sweden, Matthew Barzin. Uh, he's been a friend of ours for a decade plus. He's going to talk about what a day in the life is like when you're an ambassador. He'll tell stories about the queen. He'll tell stories about how he got in trouble for telling stories about the queen. Then I relayed to him uh, your story about the queen, and you will really want to hear that reaction. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and we'll talk about why Matthew is waging a war against bureaucracy in his new book, The Power of Giving Away Power. So definitely, definitely stick around um, for that conversation. It's it's very rare that you meet somebody and over the course of the decade, like your first impression that they're just one of the nicest people you've ever met remains the case like 15 years later. But that's what it's like with Matthew. He's just like the best guy. Great dude. And uh, yeah, I mean, I remember uh, I saw him when he was over in London on official trips. And then I also went over there and had like one of the best dinners of my life uh, with him and his wife, um, ending uh, ending it off with like his his Woodford Reserve uh, reserve, um, mm-hmm. which is excellent. Uh, mm-hmm. But the thing he did over there that was so interesting is he had a real cultural focus at the ambassador's residence. So he'd have these concerts. I think he had like the national play over there yeah. and like a bunch of bands yeah. like that. It was it was pretty cool. Like it was not yeah your stodgy you know Trumpy successor that he had Woody Johnson the the crappy owner of the the Jets. Yeah, no, it wasn't some stuffy old like, you know, hedge fund person or whatever that job often is. It was like the most fun person who was actually famously really good at the job. Matthew did an amazing job. People loved him over there. So uh, it's worth listening to. And speaking of worth listening to, if you have not checked it out already, uh, check out, listen to, subscribe to our new podcast, Edith. It is a scripted comedy starring Rosamund Pike. It explores the untold, truish story of America's secret first female president, Edith Wilson, first lady to Woodrow Wilson. It's hilarious. Uh, Two episodes are out. New episodes come out every Thursday. Uh, Travis Helwig, who many of you know and love, is is one of the co-creators. So check it out on Spotify, Apple Pods, wherever you get your podcasts, because uh, you will enjoy it. It's fun. It's just fun. All right, Ben. So we talked about this last week. Uh, 
But last Friday, the president of Afghanistan, Ashraf Ghani, met with President Biden at the White House. He was joined by Abdullah Abdullah, who's the guy leading the effort to broker a peace deal with the Taliban. So a few updates that came out of that meeting or around the meeting because they were reported in the press. First, Biden said the U.S. will provide Afghanistan with $266 million in humanitarian aid, $3.3 billion in security aid, and then send 3 million doses of the Johnson & Johnson coronavirus vaccine to Afghanistan. So that's a good thing. Second, the Wall Street Journal reported that uh, there's a new U.S. intelligence uh, community assessment that found that the government of Afghanistan could collapse in as little as six months after the U.S. pulls out uh, of the country. So that's revised way down from the previous assessment that was like two years to sort of the floor. Third, we talked last week about concerns uh, that Afghan citizens who had worked with the U.S. over the years were being targeted for assassination by the Taliban and that the process of vetting them and getting them relocated was going really slowly. Good news there is there's some reports that the Biden team uh, is working on a plan that would relocate those individuals and their families first. So like maybe take them to a place like Guam so that they are safe during that vetting process. Uh, So Ben, you know, good news there and that last point, but obviously not great news on this intelligence assessment. What did you make of Biden's meeting with Ghani and that intel report? You know, I think, you know, Biden's doing what we can do, right, which is a signal that we have a long term commitment, um, not not just, you know, short term tranches of assistance, but there, there's going to be a sustained effort to support the remaining Afghan security forces uh, in the fight and the long term sustainability uh, of the Afghan security forces, but also this humanitarian piece. Um, you know, and, and obviously I, I was very pleased to see the news of, of, you know, the Biden team signaling that they may take in tens of thousands of Afghans who worked with us. I think that's essential. Um, yeah. and, and I think, look, if the if you need a, a temporary place like Guam uh, to process people and to get them visas, better to do that there than to be trying to do it in a really chaotic security environment like in Afghanistan. Um, as long as I think, you know, hopefully they, they get here and don't get stuck in Guam. Nothing, nothing wrong with Guam, but um, right. I don't think that's yeah. the long term solution. Not um, the goal. Yeah, not the goal. Um, but then I guess like, I was trying, the new thing I'd say, I was struck by, you know, these comments um, you saw coming out of the meeting from Ghani um, about this is 1861, as if kind of it's like the beginning of a civil war, not the end of a civil war. Mm-hmm. And even the only kind of plan that there appears to be on the Afghan government side is to kind of try to unite these different warlords and factions who have been at odds with each other to some extent, but but may form a united front against the Taliban. And again, I think what's so... While that is inevitable, and I think that that may be the only way to try to to hold some territory uh, against a, what has been a really aggressive Taliban offensive, um, it, it's it's amazing how much that returns you to kind of the pre nine eleven status quo, where mm-hmm. you had a bunch of warlords in the north who kind of fought the yep. Taliban in the south, um, and, and so it is. It's pretty remarkable that you know twenty years of war kind of is returning Afghanistan to some extent to that state. Um, obviously, without the Al Qaeda safe haven, right? So the um, the principal reason we went into Afghanistan has, you know, been addressed. Um, but but I, I I think it speaks to it should in, inject everybody with a dose of humility. I don't think that's a failure of our troops. I think it's it's a sign of the limits of what a foreign military presence can do in a place like Afghanistan. Um, yeah. So I hope people don't lose sight of 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 the challenges there after the last U.S. troops exit. Um, I hope we sustain our commitment. I hope that we get as many Afghans out as we can um, and, and, you know, hope for the best. But it, it looks like it's going to be an incredibly 
uh, difficult circumstance because you know I, I, that Intel assessment. Look, there, there's always kind of the, the worst case doom and gloom assessment. I think what's clear in the news reporting is the the Taliban offensive into these northern cities that have not necessarily been their strongholds. Uh, you know, is a pretty clear tell that the Taliban's intention here is to try to take over the country. Yeah, yeah, I think that's exactly right. Well, I imagine we'll come back to this like almost every week because yeah. the deadline for getting U.S. troops out is in September. So stay tuned for more on this. Um, uh, the second story here, I just want to warn everybody in advance. This is a very tough story to to hear or to talk about. So uh, the context is for decades, uh, indigenous children in Canada were taken from their families and forced to live in these church-run boarding houses where they were often abused. And they were basically forcibly stripped of their language and their culture. Like they literally weren't allowed to speak their own languages. There was a 2015 report by the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada that estimated that about 150,000 indigenous kids passed through these schools between 1883 and 1996 when they were finally closed, and that 6,000 kids died. That was the old estimate. I, I still can't believe these schools were open until 1996. Yeah. Um, this year, this summer really, the bodies of nearly 1,000 people have been found on the grounds of two of these schools. There were many, many more. It's not yet clear how many of the bodies were indigenous students or how they died, but like it's pretty well documented that these kids were not treated well. Obviously, disease was rampant at some of these periods, but there was also a lot of physical and sexual abuse happening. Um, the discovery has led to calls for Prime Minister Trudeau, Justin Trudeau of Canada, to allocate more funding for these kinds of searches and to do more generally to help Canada's 1.7 million Indigenous citizens who are still living with just horrible trauma from these schools, and in many cases, intergenerational trauma. The discoveries have also led to calls for the Vatican to apologize for the role that the Catholic Church played here, because 70% of these schools were operated by the Catholic Church. Uh, Episcopal denominations in Canada have, have apologized previously. And in the U.S., uh, Deb Howland, the uh, Interior Secretary, who's the first Native American cabinet secretary in U.S. history, announced that the U.S. is going to search uh, similar facilities here in the U.S. And so, you know, we just want to raise awareness about this. It's a truly horrible story that I think people are are rightly describing as a cultural genocide. Uh, and it's something that happened right here in, in North America. And, you know, I'm glad to see Canada trying to get to the bottom of it. I do think that's you know, the kind of progress that we should probably be taking right now, too. Yeah, I mean, a few things jumped out to me, Tommy. I mean, one of the things was that, that there have been oral traditions or, or kind of, you know, storytelling through generations about yeah. um, the, the mass killings of, 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 of children that were kind of ignored or dismissed or not taken seriously enough. Um, that, that was just a stunning detail to me that this is lived within these communities um, and it's only now that that they're getting to it. Um, all, you know, although obviously better, better late than never. Um, I do think, you know, it made me ashamed um, at the extent to which I didn't know about this. In, you know, Canada here in North America, and obviously it does suggest, as you say, that there's plenty of history that we don't know about what happened um, in the United States um, with indigenous communities. But I, I think that also globally, you know, you've seen in recent years, you know, movements to have more of a reckoning in places like Australia, New Zealand. I, I just think globally, when you see something this shocking and jarring, yes, you want apologies. Yes, you want redress. Yes, you want resources from the Canadian government. Again, that apology from the Vatican. But I think everybody needs to take a, a harder look at their own history. Um, anybody that has a circumstance where you have Indigenous people uh, who were mistreated, who were displaced, who were the subject of, of, of 
genocide, ethnic cleansing. So, so I think that if anything constructive can come globally from this, it's that any country that has history like this needs to, to shine a brighter light on it and, and, and do what is necessary to, to, to try to address uh, the past. Um, yeah. Because, you know, I, I, these are, this is part of who we are. This is part of what made our country, uh, made Canada, made many other countries. And it continues to be um, a, a situation where there are communities that, that deserve better. Yeah. I mean, look, if, if conservatives in this country can't stomach uh, the teaching of critical race theory or slavery, uh, wait till they see the curriculum about the treatment of Native peoples and, you know, the literal genocide through disease and other means that happened uh, around the founding of the country. I mean, by the way, you know, I, I agree with you completely, Ben, that like education is really the first step here. If folks want to listen to a podcast that gets some of these issues, uh, This Land, our series, um, talks about the treatment of Native Americans in the U.S., including treaty rights. And then the second season is coming out uh, later this summer, and it's going to talk about some of these specific issues that we're touching on right now. So important stuff uh, and stories that really need to be told. And as you say, because like, again, like, listen to the voices of the Native peoples. You know, like, yeah. like too often it's like, and because that, that's what speaks to the world tradition, like, you know, oftentimes this is treated as something that is discussed without them driving the conversation. Um, this, you know, this land... Uh, is a good example of storytelling that that listens to the voices of, of, of Native people. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, you know, basically the entire production was Native people from the host yeah. to the, you know, people editing to ever, because we felt that was really important. Uh, the next issue uh, is equally dark, Ben. <laughs> so we're going to talk about Saudi Arabia and Jamal Khashoggi. So the background for listeners was in 2018, um, Saudi operatives murdered a journalist named Jamal Khashoggi in a Saudi consulate in Istanbul. The assassination was ordered up by Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, or MBS for short. Last week, the New York Times reported that four of the Saudis who participated in Khashoggi's murder had received paramilitary training in the United States. This was, I think, a year before the murder. Yeah. Uh, the training was provided by a company called the Tier One Group. What a weird Orwellian, I don't know, name. Yeah. They say that the goal of the training was to help the Saudi Royal Guard defend Saudi leaders. It was supposed yeah. to be defensive in nature. Yeah. But it's clear that the guys who are supposed to be like MBS's elite totally guards, bullshit. right, they yeah. became his private assassination force. Yeah. So this training was first approved by the Obama administration in 2014. It was continued by Trump. And so while, you know, Trump's relationship with the Saudis, with MBS in particular, is, is gross and problematic because he literally tried to cover up Khashoggi's murder for MBS, the issue is more about, I think, the U.S.-Saudi relationship than any yeah. one president. So, Ben, this report also made me think of the incident in 2019 when a member of the Saudi Air Force was in Florida getting training, and then he went on uh, a shooting rampage. It was an Al-Qaeda-linked attack in the U.S. and Florida. Uh, so, look, I realize that, like, the U.S. Uh, and the Saudis, we've allied in a lot of areas from fighting Al-Qaeda or AQAP to, like, managing Iran's nuclear ambitions or support for terrorism. But I, I guess my question for you is, like, at what point do you think the U.S. government needs to start asking whether this training could potentially do more harm than good? I mean, if we're, like, training individuals who are murdering journalists who live in the U.S., that seems like a real problem. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I think it's long past time for the, the kind of full reconsideration of this relationship with Saudi Arabia. Um, whatever we're getting out of it, it is it is corrupting us to be a party to, to this kind of stuff. Um, and it is not, I think, in the long run, advancing U.S. interest to have this kind of regime engaged in this kind of activity with the support of the United States because the rest of the world sees us. And we talk a lot on the show about democracy and authoritarianism, 
what what leg do we have to stand on in all of those conversations around the world if we are supporting and training people for an autocrat like like Mohammed bin Salman? Um, so I, yeah. I, I just think this stuff needs to end full stop. I mean, it's not like it's time to just. And look, people can at me about the Obama administration. I was not a fan of the, let's be clear, of, of, of the Saudi government in those years. And I think the, the Saudi government would, uh, would back me up on that. Um, the, but the, the, the reality here is that oftentimes we hear about like needing to recalibrate things and tweak things. Like, no, sometimes you just shouldn't be doing things. And, um, and we'll get ahead, you know, I think when we get to the Russian mercenary story, there's this kind of interesting um, spectrum between things that the U.S. government does, right, like the pilots, um, and then things that are kind of privatized. Mm-hmm. Um, and that kind of runs the spectrum all the way to kind of the stuff that like Eric Prince and his outfit does, often in concert with like the Saudis and the Emiratis and places like yeah. Yemen, where you literally yeah. have mercenaries who not only fight in wars like places like Yemen, but I've gone kind of down rabbit holes on this stuff. You know, they'll be hired to be like the protective guard for the Saudi royal family in some fashion, but they do more than just, you know, run motorcades and be bodyguards. They do all kinds of stuff. They do private intelligence. They do clearly shadier work. Um, And I think this is an area that deserves a lot more scrutiny um, from policymakers, from the press. Um, I think we only have seen the tip of the iceberg of this kind of underworld of the kind of privatized espionage, mercenaries, security that if you have a lot of money, like the Saudis do, uh, you know, you can take a lot of advantage of. So there's a U.S. government yeah. issue here, and then there's a broader issue that, that has to be addressed. Well, so let's talk about this Russian element, because I agree it's, it's, it's escalating it and it's gross. So according to a U.N. Security Council report, Russia sent mercenary forces to the Central African Republic in an effort to help the government there win back a bunch of towns that were basically where valuable uh, diamond mines were existed. Yeah. So these Russian mercenaries, according to this report, engaged in excessive force, indiscriminate killings, looting, they even killed worshipers at a mosque. And so basically, like it's exactly what you talked about, Ben, the continuum. Like yeah. the UN had okayed a military training mission for the Central African Army, but the UN ultimately found that there were as many as 2,100 Russian mercenary fighters there yeah. in the country engaging in combat. And the Times got an early look at this report, and in their story on its fightings, they noted that these Russian mercenaries like keep popping up in places like Libya, Mozambique, yeah. South yeah. Sudan, Chad. Many of them are employed Syria. by a Russian, yeah, Syria. Yeah. Uh, many of them are employed by a Russian oligarch who is close to Putin through yeah. a company called the Wagner Group. Yeah. So, I, like, I get it. I guess my question to you then is like, I agree that we need more scrutiny on this stuff. What do you think that the U.S. or the international community can do to kind of curtail this activity? So first of all, I, I think the U.S. needs to set a better example because you know, we've yeah. been setting the wrong example in this across oh, you think, the board. think Blackwater was good? Well, no. exactly. So basically <laughs> yeah. part of what's happened here, right, is after the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, um, you had this explosion of private military contractors. And that was Blackwater. That was the infamous group um, that was engaged in some atrocities in Iraq under the leadership of Eric Prince, who has since kind of repurposed, rebranded, renamed mm-hmm. Blackwater multiple times. Yeah. But there is still a massive footprint of private military contractors, again, that the U.S. government contracts with in places like Iraq and Afghanistan. Not everybody who works for those firms is like a bad guy, right? Like a lot of them are former military guys who just they, they need a job and they're 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 driving motorcades or they're yep. they're running logistics. So I, I, I'm not painting everywhere the broad brush, but part of what's happened over time is look, the U.S. intelligence community 
subcontract some stuff out. I mean, I felt like even when I was in government, I didn't have my mind fully wrapped around the extent of, of national security functions that were privatized. And, and when you get into places like Libya and Yemen that, that are just tough places where we don't have a lot of troops on the ground, uh, you have, uh, you know, I think way too much activity, way too much money flowing to these kinds of contractors with way too little oversight. And, and yeah. so I'm just talking about America here. Like we need to set a better example in terms of what is the transparency around this? What is the oversight of this? How much stuff should we really be outsourcing to contractors like this? Uh, because the first thing we need to do is just is, is, is set a better example. It's like everything else. I think secondly, if, if you want to go down a rabbit hole world, those like Google the Wagner Group. And trust me, you can spend a lot of time reading about this because like a lot of things, what the Russians did is they just created an even worse version of the Frankenstein that we did. I mean, the Wagner Group has been deep in places like Syria and Libya with no regard to humanitarian consequences. And again, and that spills into Africa where you have these competitions over natural resources in countries without much governance, right? And, and so that's ripe for, you know, a couple thousand mercenaries to, yeah, to go in and wreak havoc, you know. Um, and, and frankly, you know, South Africans, um, you know, infamously did this a lot in the past, white South Africans, the old, the old regime and the, the legacy of that regime. Um, so uh, this is an area that, like, again, it's like the, the dark underbelly of what's happening out there in the world. If people want to read a book about how this intersects with kind of authoritarianism, they should check out a book called Kleptopia by Tom Burgess, which will blow your mind. Because, again, like there's such an interconnection between this stuff and then, the, again, the private intelligence firms, groups like Black Cube that were spying yep. on me, you know, yeah. that I write about right. in my book if you want to check that out. But, like, this is a – I don't know if you've done much – like, I know you kind of read about this, Tommy, like – it's amazing to me how little we understand about this kind of privatized security world out there. Yeah. And like Eric Prince was, you know, look, I, Blackwater during the Bush administration disgraced itself, right? There were these horrible atrocities that happened. Innocent civilians were killed. It seemed like an entity that would kind of maybe hopefully fade away. Like, look, naively, like if if we lived in a just world, it would have gone away. It would have been shut down. But instead, under the Trump administration, Eric Prince like had an open door yeah. With Steve Bannon, he was in the Oval Office. They were pitching the National Security Council on privatizing the war in Afghanistan. And like, I just can't think of a worse idea than removing congressional oversight from a war effort to make putting a for-profit element into a war yeah. effort. I mean, like, uh, look, talk about uh, pouring gas on on a fire. I mean, that's you. It's just a catastrophically bad idea that I think had quite an audience in in the Trump years. Yeah, and and again, if you look at the the Russian piece of this. Like they have a good special forces capability. Um, so it doesn't take much in terms of money or even personnel, because a lot of yeah. these groups like the Wagner Group are pretty loosely tied to totally. Russian security interests. They're if run they by want, oligarchs, right? I mean, yeah, that one this, guy. There's this kind of neocolonial competition for resources in Africa now between Russia and China and yep. to some extent the U.S., where a lot of the, the front lines are these places, again, not well governed, where these kind of mercenary forces can make a big difference and, and they can hook up with the wrong warlord and terrible things can happen to innocent people who are caught up in that. And then again, I think people need to, to, to grasp the extent to which 
it's fighting wars, it's securing resources, it's being private security detail, but it's also running disinformation campaigns, you know, getting mm-hmm. dirt on people, blackmailing people. Like this is a huge netherworld, you know. Um, and so I think the Biden team, to, to end where you started, Tommy, is like, it's worth looking in under the hood at what was going on with Eric Prince and some of these other guys in the Trump years. Because yeah, I can I imagine that some of the contracts that were dished out from yeah. DOD or the intelligence community when they had all these goons in there, uh, these, these MAGA guys, uh, I, I assume some of those contracts went to people like Prince. I, I'd kind of like to know what they are and what those guys are doing. Yeah, uh, agreed with that. Uh, let's talk about one other, uh, unfortunately, ongoing civil war in Africa. So for the past eight months, there's been this civil war in Ethiopia. It has killed thousands. It's pushed hundreds of thousands of people to the brink of famine and displaced more than two million uh, Ethiopians. So this started when the Ethiopian prime minister, Abiy Ahmed, allied with the country's former enemy, Eritrea, to attack the northern Tigray region of Ethiopia, which also happens to be the home to Prime Minister Abiy's former rivals. Uh, that's the short description. So Prime Minister Abiy said you know, that his attack uh, on Tigray was a response to attacks by rebel fighters on his troops. But I mean, I, I think you know, we, we should probably see through that explanation. Since then, there have been many credible reports of war crimes. Uh, and for a while, it seemed like these Ethiopian and Eritrean forces were firmly in control of the region. But this week, there was a big development and reports that the Tigray Defense Forces have launched a major counterattack and, according to the BBC, have taken back the regional capital of Tigray. So there is still an urgent need for humanitarian relief. Uh, Tragically, last week, Doctors Without Borders announced that two of its aid workers have been brutally murdered in Tigray. Uh, It's not clear to me, Ben, whether this kind of trading of territory will just prolong the fighting or whether this could possibly create maybe some sort of humanitarian zone in Tigray where people are safe and where the international community can deliver some supplies. The UN has accused Eritrean troops of blocking aid shipments and using starvation as a weapon of war, so it's a real risk. Um, I think we should note also that we're waiting on uh, the results of a recent election in Ethiopia, but don't have that yet. So, Ben, I was reading this profile of Abiy, the prime minister. Yeah. I did not realize that he was an evangelical Christian who believes in the prosperity gospel. Those are the folks who think that God rewards you with money and material things, right? Like the preachers with private jets, which, surprise, surprise, has endeared him to the Republican Party. And that last month, Senator James Inhofe of Oklahoma flew to Ethiopia to show his support for Abiy despite U.S. sanctions and, like, concern about war crimes. I'm just like, uh, how is that possible? How can you do that? Not the first time, by the way, that you've had some kind of nutty right wing uh, Republican members of Congress embracing very questionable yeah. um, uh, evangelical or Pentecostal uh, uh, Christian African leaders uh, overlooking their human rights uh, records. Um, look, I, I think it, on the Tigray situation, party one is, is just dealing with this humanitarian crisis uh, and all these people at risk of famine. And so anything that can get better access to those people, and I know the Samantha Powers prioritizes the USAID, yeah, yeah. Um, it, you know, th- that has to, to happen. And, and that may be possible with these forces taking back parts of Tigray, because obviously they have an interest in bringing in um, more resources, whereas the Eritreans, you know, have been credibly, I think, accused of using starvation potentially as a weapon of war. Um, and then, yeah, I, I think it does suggest that a military solution um, for Ethiopia is unlikely in the sense that part of the reason why they're taking this land back is that the people don't want the Ethiopian forces there because they treat them like shit and commit yeah. human rights abuses. And, right. and so inevitably, as in any circumstance, 
like an occupying force is going to run into trouble. And and the the forces in Tigray, these are people that you know were deep in the Ethiopian army. Like the, the, these are well organized fighters. So I think it does suggest that this is going to either be a situation where you have a brokered ceasefire, peace, some kind of de-escalation, or it's just going to be a kind of grinding civil war. Like, I, I hope that that's the lesson that the Ethiopian government is taking from this, and therefore that they take the path of some kind of negotiation, de-escalation, something that just allows for humanitarian relief to get in and, and doesn't perpetuate a conflict that needlessly takes more lives. Yeah, and it sounds like uh, Biden has tapped Senator Chris Coons, like a, a close friend of his, to sort of push that message with the Ethiopian government. So hopefully they'll listen. And a guy um, named and a guy named uh, yeah. Jeff Feldman, who's uh, yes. uh, like been an envoy who, who we worked with. We in know Obama, we know well. Remember Jeff, yeah. and he was at the UN through the Trump years, so he he had a nice uh, uh, he got out um, in the right place. But that that that's good because Jeff's the kind of guy who knows both the UN system and the Biden players really well. So he's a good yes. person to do this to. Pod Save the World is brought to you by the UN Refugee Agency. The UN Refugee Agency, or UNHCR, responds to emergencies and provides long-term solutions for refugees. They provide aid in over 130 countries, including Ukraine, Syria, Afghanistan, and Sudan, where people are forced to flee from war and persecution at their greatest moment of need. UNHCR helps and protects refugees by providing food, shelter, medical care, and other life-saving essentials. The agency jumpstarts relief in three key ways. They transport core relief items stored in even the most remote areas of the world. They deploy expert emergency staff trained to help in crisis situations, and they transfer funds directly to support the emergency. Because of generous supporters and donors, UNHCR can scale up its response within 72 hours of a large-scale emergency. Your support helps provide life-saving aid for refugees whenever and wherever emergencies occur. Donate to USA for UNHCR by visiting unrefugees.org slash donation. That's unrefugees.org slash donation. Support for Pod Save the World comes from the International Rescue Committee. The IRC works in more than 50 countries, serving people whose lives have been upended by war, conflict, and natural disasters. In places like Gaza, Ukraine, and Sudan, displaced families are experiencing war, extreme hunger, and life-threatening injuries. In Gaza, Ongoing violence, bombardment, and blockade have made survival difficult for families living in damaged buildings and tents. The lack of safe water, medicine, and healthy food contributes to the spread of diseases, and children are especially at risk. The International Rescue Committee is working with local partners in Gaza to provide life-saving medical care to injured civilians. The IRC works around the world to help families in crisis by delivering critical supplies such as therapeutic food for malnourished children, clean water, cash assistance, and more. Your donation will support this work and help children and families survive. Listen, the International Rescue Committee is an incredible organization. They are doing the Lord's work all around the globe. I have donated to them, you know, for many, many years now because I know that my dollar will go towards helping people. It's not going to go to administrative costs or overhead fees. It's just an incredible group doing great work. I hope you'll consider them. Donate today by visiting rescue.org slash rebuild. That's rescue.org slash rebuild. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. 
It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Listen, if you're listening to Pod Save the World, you need some therapy. If you're watching the events around the world that might freak you out, we've got this election coming down the pike. There's a lot of stuff that people uh, are stressed about, that are anxious about, stuff that makes you lose sleep, and therapy can help. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash crookedworld. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash crookedworld. Switching uh, gears here, Ben. So it's Pride Month, and there have been a lot of amazing celebrations happening around the world and here at Crooked Media uh, about pride and, and LGBT rights. But it's also, I think, important to remember that millions, if not billions, of LGBT people around the world have to live under bigoted laws and governments. So according to Human Rights Watch, there's nearly 70 countries that have national laws that criminalize same-sex relations with consenting adults. That seems crazy in 2021, but that's the reality. Um, One recent example of a bad law comes out of Hungary, one of your... uh, yeah, infamous least favorite places, which is a, a favorite law places, that was, least favorite leaders. That's yeah, least favorite leaders. Yeah. There we go. Um, so this law was like spun as an effort to protect kids from pedophiles, right? A lot of these laws take that kind of tack, but it, but it, you know, could easily be abused and used to stigmatize and harass LGBT people. Thousands of people uh, have protested the measure in Hungary. And then when Germany played Hungary in a soccer match last week, the mayor of Munich asked for permission to light up the stadium with the colors from the LGBT flag, the rainbow flag. The idiots at UEFA, this international body governing European soccer, said no. But a lot of fans took matters into their own hands and they wore rainbow gear to the game. And then they lit up the stadium with the rainbow colors anyway after the match was over. So that's how they got around it. So uh, my uh, conclusion here is good for Germany. Get your shit together, UEFA. And once again, Viktor Orban, you are the worst person in the world, potentially. And we Yeah, he's, he's, you know, he's making a run at it. I mean, the, the reality here in this I, I talk a, a good amount in my book about is that uh, – you know, Orban has been copying the Putin playbook um, for over a decade here. And and Putin, you know, was at the vanguard of a bunch of these types of laws in Russia mm-hmm. that basically criminalized the LGBT community in Russia under the guise of protecting children. Um, yeah. and, and it was the same kind of gross justifications, same kind of stigmatization. And it was all meant to kind of gin up this us versus them politics you know, us, the real Russians or the traditional Russians or the traditional Christian Russians, the same thing Orban is doing in Hungary. And it's fucking bullshit. And it's, it, you know, and, and with Orban, it's just the latest target. You know, it was yeah. immigrants. It was it was Muslims, it was, you know, refugees, uh, George Soros. He, he went after the Roma people like, you know, now we're going yep. after LGBT people because this guy has no agenda to run on and he's corrupt and everybody knows it. And so he's constantly trying to find some divisive culture war issue to grab onto. It sounds kind of familiar, right? Yeah, it does. I, it does. I think the, the one thing I'd throw into the mix here, Tommy, is that the EU needs to get its act together on this more in the sense that they're giving billions of dollars to, to Hungary on, in these EU funds that Orban has been siphoning off the top to finance his cronies who then finance his politics. The EU has basically been subsidizing Viktor Orban's corruption. They've recently given themselves more powers to punish and sanction EU leaders who act in undemocratic ways. Clearly, this is that. Uh, yeah. And so you've seen some really good statements uh, out of European leaders. You even saw 
the Dutch prime minister raising the prospect of like, hey, we shouldn't even have somebody in the EU if they're going to pass laws like that. Yeah. Right. Um, and I think, you know, listen to the voices of the Hungarian opposition on this. They want the EU to play tougher with Orban, not necessarily kick them out of the EU, but start with those funds and say, if you're going to pass laws that are that in that contradiction to the kind of liberal values of the EU, you're not going to get a dollar from us, you know, period, full stop. Yeah, no, I think that's really good advice. Um, and something that we should be probably talking about even more. So we will keep an eye on this one. Um, let's turn to the Biden administration, Ben, because on Monday, the Biden team, uh, the Biden administration conducted airstrikes on Iranian-backed militias in Iraq and Syria. And the White House said that they, were, they did this because you know these Iranian-backed militias were launching drones against U.S. forces in Iraq and targeting our forces. So Biden cited as his legal authority Article 2 of the Constitution and the right to defend U.S. forces in the region. That was the legal case. That didn't sit well with a lot of Democrats. Um, the House of Representatives recently started the process of repealing the 2002 authorization for the use of military force, which is long overdue. This is just the broader context here. And then people like Senator Chris Murphy, they're talking about the need to rein in the White House's authority when it comes to these Article II airstrikes that we're talking about right now that are ostensibly for force protection. Because Murphy's point, which I think is a very good one, is that if you are constantly taking strikes in self-defense, like lobbying back and forth with these militias, pretty soon you're in a low-grade war. Yeah. And a low-grade war in any scenario needs to be authorized by Congress. Um, so, Ben, you know, in the past, there have been some members of Congress who have consistently tried to reassert Congress's role, like Tim Kaine comes to mind. There are many more who think it's bad politics. They don't want to deal with it. They don't like the political risk. We saw that during the Syria uh, redline situation. Do you Get the sense that like the political winds are shifting here and there's a chance that Congress might really try to roll back the executive's authority? I mean, I think it'd be uh, really hard to accomplish in practice, but I think it's worth the effort <laughs> um, mm -hmm. because, yeah, I mean, like at what point, are, you know, are, are you at war with Iran? Uh, through these proxies, right, in, in a kind of low-grade war. We said in the Trump years that we were. I mean, like, I, um, that was mm -hmm. our assessment on this podcast, right, is essentially you had such tit-for-tat and you had the assassination of Qasem Soleimani and you had this constant kind of brink of escalation with the Iranians. And it was a kind of low-grade war. It wasn't like a conventional war. I don't want to overstate it. But the reality is, like, that needs to be discussed and debated. If there's going to be a repetitive multi-year set of airstrikes against uh, Iranian targets like the American people uh, are they aware of that <laughs> like like uh, you know, under and, and and to me this gets to the question of ending forever wars right because it's you know it's one thing to take troops out of Afghanistan um, it, it's actually a, a much more complicated thing to kind of de dismantle and disentangle the legal authorities and and the, and the infrastructure of the forever war in so many countries. And we need to be asking ourselves across the board, like, under what legal authority are we conducting military operations? How much of this stuff do we really need to still be doing? Um, what infrastructure and resources is supporting it? Like, it's we need that kind of bigger discussion, you know, if we're truly going to take on the target of ending the forever wars. It's not just about taking troops out of Afghanistan. It's about looking at this whole enterprise. Yeah, look, and good for Senator Murphy for raising this. Yeah. And, I, and it's like, I, I do think that just having this conversation every time there's a strike will probably, I don't know, make people think twice about leaning on Article 2 or, or declining to brief Congress or, you know, relying on past habits in these cases. And I do think a bit of it is that. It's like when there's no friction 
when you take an airstrike in a sovereign country, of course you're going to do it again if it if it feels yeah. easy. Yeah, and, and and look, I get like your force protection concerns. You see, you see some intelligence. Right. You want to take action to I'm protect not arguing our, that, yeah. our, our people. The, here's the problem with that, though, over time. Like, first of all, you, you know, the amount of military resources and even strikes that we're engaged in for the purpose of protecting our people leads to a growing military footprint itself. Yeah. And then that growing military footprint is increasing conflict with groups like these Iranian-backed proxies. Yep. And one of those incidents can spiral where they escalate in response and then we escalate. And then suddenly, like, you're in a war that wasn't like the original intended war. I mean, we're, we're on the third or fourth rationale for having troops in military action in, in Iraq. You know, um, yeah. it was yeah. weapons of mass destruction. It was democracy. It was, you know, countering al-Qaeda. Then it was countering ISIS. Now it's countering Iranian proxies. Like, at a certain point, like, you know, we're so far away from the reason we went there in the first place that we have to ask these questions. Yeah, and killing Qasem Soleimani, the uh, the Iranian general, was supposed to solve a lot of these problems, and what a shock! It didn't. Oh, it was supposed to restore deterrence, right? Yeah, yeah, restore deterrence. Uh, Want to do a quick coronavirus update before we get to some quicker headlines? So there's a lot of discussion lately about the Delta variant of the COVID nineteen virus. It's a much more transmissible strain. Uh, and it's become the dominant strain in a lot of countries. It can lead to more severe symptoms. The good news for everyone in America is that the vaccines are still very effective. But obviously, there are concerns about a lot of people who live in countries where the vaccine is not widely available or available at all, and that some of those countries might have like India-like level outbreaks. You're starting to hear a lot about this sort of scenario in places in Africa, which so far has done pretty well against COVID. But in Kenya, South Africa, Uganda, and Namibia, there's concerns about like third waves that are worse than the first or the second. Um, only 1% of the continent of Africa is fully vaccinated. Uh, so that is terrible. Uh, I know the Delta variant is on a lot of people's minds. Again, like you probably shouldn't worry if you're listening to this show, but I do think, you know, stories like this. Uh, variants like the Delta variant should make us want to double down on our efforts to help the world get access to vaccines because COVID is still very much a threat. It's a threat to, you know, mutate again, develop new variants. I saw something about the COVID plus variant, right? So like, we got to get this thing under control. Uh, glad the Biden team is on it. I uh, hope they'll keep going though. Yeah. I need the same like kind of rigor that we use to protect ourselves to, to deal with the both humanitarian and public health crisis around the world, because you know, the longer this is able to transmit, you know, the more we're going to have these kinds of scares over and over and over again. Better to just get on top of this. And, and they got to really keep kind of the floodgates open with the vaccines here. Yeah, agreed. Uh, OK, a couple quicker things. So one, Japan is considering shifting to a four day work week. Uh, the idea is to help employees who want to go back to school, raise a family, just hang out. Uh, so the population of Japan is aging. The birth rate is falling. That's a major concern for the future of the country. It's also seen as a step that would help the economy because people will spend more money when they're not working. That To me, that was a little bit counterintuitive, but I love it. It's interesting. Um, Japan traditionally has had a pretty intense work culture where you're expected to be there a lot. So it may surprise people, right, that they're following the lead of Spain, which launched a three-year voluntary 32-hour work week experiment. So Ben, I'm just raising this because I love this idea. And I want to know who we have to call uh, at the Biden White House to like get them to push <laughs> the for this. Four, four day, I mean, let's do this. I, you know, I, look, I think the, this is another one of those categories of, of issues where the, the nature of work is changing everywhere. The nature of family is changing, right, as, as, as we really work for gender equality. Um, and therefore, we need to learn from different places about what they're doing to manage that, you know. Um, and so 
like if, if Japan is ch- taking something like this on, like we should take a hard look at that and see if it works there and what might we want to take away from that. So uh, I think we're going to see a lot more countries, you, you know, everything from obviously, you know, family leave policies to work week policies uh, to universal basic income type approaches. Um, uh, we have to make sure that we're watching um, what public policies are working, what's not working in other places. Yeah. Also, like we have just a cultural problem around this. Like, if you're a billionaire and I read about how you're still a workaholic and you do 80 hour weeks, you're just an idiot. You should just chill the <laughs> yeah, fuck out. Yeah, like yeah. what, what, what do you need to buy that you can't buy already? Well, and like, Mark you know, Zuckerberg, life should be whatever. about something more than work. I mean, Americans tend to forget that. And Japanese, like we're much more in that category of people just work, work, work. But I mean, yeah. you know, I think there's a bit of a crisis of, of meaning in people's lives. Yeah. So maybe with that extra day a week, you know, you can do some, you know, do some thinking. I'm for it. I'm for more thinking. Uh, second, so yeah, self-care. Second story. Uh, speaking of self-care, North Koreans are reportedly heartbroken uh, over Kim Jong-un's weight loss. This is pretty recent. So CNN mm-hmm. had a good piece on this. And they made the point in this segment that it's very rare and surprising for the North Korean state-run news channels to talk about Kim's health in any way. But apparently, I guess just like his weight loss was so evident that they felt the need to talk about it for the domestic audience because these changes were visible. We don't know why Kim lost weight. I'm, I'm sure the intelligence community is like desperately trying to figure it out, but I don't know. I just thought it was interesting and uh, it could be a sign of a health problem. It could be a sign that he's downloaded Noom and is sort of getting on a diet. I don't know, but notable. I was going to say, like, I, I'm not like thinking that he's at the top of the list for guys who's like doing the South Beach diet or something. No, um, he's ripping cigs uh, and drinking uh, yeah, French yeah. wine. Yeah, nor do I think he's hitting like the, the spinning class that hard, you know? Um, so, like, you have to think, uh, given the personality type in question here, the excesses that, uh, you know, he has been more than rumored to, to be known to go to, um, that, that something is probably afoot. Um, so it yeah. does bear watching. There's watching. Maybe he's a CrossFit guy. We'll find out. Maybe, uh, maybe. Then I want to do a little UFO. So, Ben, last week, the National Intelligence Director released a report on UFOs. It was requested by the Senate Intelligence Committee last year. So we only got to see an unclassified version, but here's some takeaways. One, they think that these objects that we keep seeing in, like, footage from F-18s or whatever are physical objects. Two, there's some things they could be, like clutter, some sort of atmospheric phenomena like ice crystals, some sort of foreign government objects being used to spy on us, or like maybe even a more secret U.S. government thing. They don't know. The report looked at 140 incidents where UFOs were observed. And some of them, these objects that they saw did extraordinary, unexplainable things like move super fast without an engine or like not move in the winds at a high atmosphere. Um, A lot of the sightings were around U.S. military installations, and, you know, this report notes that, like, the Russians and the Chinese are constantly trying to spy on that kind of, you know, stuff. So some of these sightings could be, like, a balloon or a device associated with spying activity, right? Like a submarine releases a balloon to capture something. I don't know the shit works. But the Washington Examiner had an interesting write-up, which is not something I've ever whoa, said before. Whoa, I've, but never they... heard, I've never heard that <laughs> phrase anywhere before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Washington yeah, Examiner yeah. used to be like a free newspaper given outside yeah. the subway in, uh, in D.C. But, you know, so basically they noted, one, the CIA wasn't part of this report. Interesting. Hmm. Two, there was no mention of nuclear technology in the report. And then three, there was no mention of sort of like some sort of acoustic sonars and things that, you know, you think might have been used here. So more questions than answers 
fascinating to see the U.S. intelligence community release a report that says, yeah, we see this stuff and we don't know what the hell it is. Ben, my question for you, what would you give to get your hands on the classified version of this report? Oh, yeah. I mean, and, and look, you've seen some of these videos, right, Tommy? I mean, like, yeah, yeah. have you ever seen a fucking balloon do any of those things? I mean, come on. No, you no, know? I have not. And, and, and look, the idea that Russia or China have like, these things moving at like the speed of sound up and down and sideways with no engines. Like I, 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 I mean, if they do like, you would think that they'd be doing other stuff with them. Uh, mm-hmm. just kind of like messing around with some of our pilots. So that kind of, I kind of rule that out. Um, that leaves like the aliens, which I think we presume this probably is right. Um, although I don't want to go too far here. But like the throwaway of like, or maybe there's some other U.S. government program we don't know about. I was like, what? Like, what? Like, (laughs) I I was there for eight years. I definitely wasn't read into the like crazy UFO like things that like go in circles around our own planes. Like, what is going on here? Like, this. Like, I I, I hope this is not just a report that gets issued and like we all just forget about this. Like, it'd be nice to know what these objects are. They're like flying around, you know, in crazy ways in the atmosphere. I think there's a task force that's now basically tasked with constantly following this and probably updating the Intel committee. But man, wild, wild yeah, stuff. Yeah. Um, all right, conclude with a couple lighter things. So first, just a quick sports minute. Um, first sports minute update uh, is just a word of advice. Do not bring your big, dumb cardboard sign to the Tour de France like one fan did oh on Saturday God, yeah. because she Insane. caused a massive crash. Uh, if you haven't seen it, all-time sports blooper. Uh, nobody was hurt bad, right? Nobody was hurt. Not that I saw, but it was like just like endless rows of Tour de France bikers like you know, stacked up. And then the woman just disappeared. Like you know, she, <laughs> just, they can't find so, her. They can't find her. So they're like somewhere. And she just had like a big poorly done banner. Like it wasn't like. Yeah, it was like high was, grandma or something. Yeah, like that. it wasn't like ill intent here. Um, or it wasn't even like a political protest or something. But but yeah, like uh, check it out and, and don't don't do that if you're going to go watch the tour. Yeah, don't do that. Uh, second, we here at Pod Save the World are pumped about the Olympics, and we're going to start highlighting some of the athletes on the show, so stay tuned for that. Kind of ran out of time this week. And then finally, if you aren't watching the Euro 2020 soccer games, you have some time left. The games this week have been incredible. France versus Switzerland was just an unbelievable, exciting game that went into overtime. Germany versus England today had some great action at the end, some really great goals, and then it gave you a chance to fire off all your well-worn World War One and World War II jokes. Yeah, so yeah, we're there for yeah. that too. So Ben, my question for you, rank them for me in terms of your interest and odds of watching. Tour de France, Euro 2020, Summer Olympics. So first of all, like my, you know, uh, sports punditry, uh, you know, I, I think the last time we talked about this, I talked about how great the Dutch were playing and then they just got tossed in the in the round of 16. So oh. um, I'm going to like not offer like any predictions about the cold Euro. takes exposed um, here. Yeah. But I, look, I'm a summer Olympics. Uh, like I, I like all those sports. The tour is like an underrated thing to watch. If you're an American, like you should check it out. It's crazy what these guys can do. And like seeing them winding through this ridiculous geography in France mountains. And it's very cool. Um, but then the Euro, I'm definitely watching already. Um, and then the summer Olympics. So I, I just, to me, like, I, I don't know, as a kid, I still remember, like, some of my earliest sports memories were, like, the, that 84 Olympics, you know, um, and I just caught the bug. So I, I can't wait to dig into this. Uh, and, 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 yeah, like, in the pod, we'll try to bring you – there's always some crazy 
set of stories from around the world from these athletes. Um, yeah. That that like really like I'm I'm here for the schmaltzy Olympics coverage on TV where you get like the nine minute like mini documentary of somebody's oh, life. Yeah. So that then when they like get the silver medal in the swimming race, like I'm literally in tears like watching this. So totally. like we'll, we'll try to tee some that up here. No Bob Costas or anything, but I, I, I like we'll do our best. Yeah, no, no Bob Costas pink eye, but it is a, a human interest story, uh, just bonanza. It's a, it's a free-for-all, and I love it. Um, okay, two dumb stories to end the show. And then, Ben, I would like you to rank for the listeners which one you think is the dumbest. Uh, the first involves a very dumb leader named Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister of England. He wants the UK to spend $280 million on a new national flagship vessel, a boat, for the UK to serve as some sort of floating brand ambassador. Sounds like an expensive monument to yeah. stupidity to Sounds me like for a country. Bre- Brexit's going great. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like. Yeah. Oh yeah. Brexit. COVID. Yeah. Let's build a fucking boat. I guess he has a history of doing this stuff, like wanting to build bridges over the Thames or like one to Northern Ireland. I don't know. Stuff nobody wants. So that's yeah. his big construction thing. Second story: a pair of nude sunbathers in Australia had to be rescued after they apparently ran into the bushes and got lost after being scared by a deer. Uh, this was on a remote beach south of Sydney, Australia. After the rescue, the two were found. They were fined for violating COVID protocols. Yeah, yeah. I like, have you seen a deer before? They're not that scary. Yeah, I, yeah. I, don't, so, yeah. I don't get what happened here. As the new South Wales uh, State Police Commissioner said, it's difficult to legislate against idiots. Ben, rank a boat or sunbathers. So I just want to say um, I, I have questions here. Um, Tell me. Uh, first of all, I didn't even know about this boat. Um, uh, like, who's going to use this boat? Like, uh, to what end? Queen, maybe? You know, yeah. Is it, like, th- is this the time that the royal family really wants to be seen as spending hundreds of millions of taxpayer dollars on a boat? You know? No. Not, I mean, there, exactly there wasn't old boat. right now, right? Yeah, they had one in, like, till, like the late 90s. They got they rid did, of it. I, no, I remember. Yeah, like, it was, like, a Britannia big, that, or whatever. Yeah, the Britannia. And I met, like, Prince Charles going on that thing after the Hong Kong handover. And But anyway, the, the, then... To be that scared of a deer, like, 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 what was the deer coming after here? Like, are, are there right. Australian deers that I don't know about? You know, like they have some of the, those giant animals that you know Tasmanian uh, devil yeah. deers. Is it exactly? Is like this kangaroo deer, deer do something else? And then I saw these people were, were helicoptered. Were, they were like heloed out of there, and it's like, I, I'm I'm just trying to imagine like you know helos are pretty tight quarter, quarters. Like when when those guys <laughs> are hold on to the, the helicopter, like. Anyway, so I'm going to rank. I actually think that the dumber thing is is building a multi hundred million dollar boat because you want to show that like global Britain is back after Brexit. Um, as much as the deer thing is kind of intriguing to me, it sounds just like a mortifying sunbathing exercise. So, so uh, look, I agree with that. Spending two hundred eighty million dollars on anything is incredibly dumb. What what I'm struggling with though is this is just really fucking up my impression of Australians, which more recently, you yeah, know, you yeah. see uh, that dude who was like boxing a kangaroo and punched it in <laughs> yeah, the face yeah, to free his yeah. dog. Like, you know, I think yeah. of like them, Crocodile Dundee, you know, yeah. that country is full of stuff that can kill you. Spiders, yeah, jellyfish, snakes, you know, great yeah. white sharks, snakes, like even the kangaroos, they have giant claws that can just like gut yeah. you. Yeah, not as friendly as you think. What kind of, what, what kind, like, what are we not understanding about this story? What kind of deer was this? And, 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 you know, why rescue these people? I mean, like, <laughs> you would think they should leave like, them in the bush. Well, they, that's the point, right? I thought the Australians are these kind of, what, what, what were they being rescued from the deer? 
You know, like, I mean, like, like they, they can't fight their way out of it. Or they can't walk through the bush. I mean, they, like, we hear about how tough Australians are. And I think they are. I've met, I've met a lot of Australians that are Me quite too. tough. You know, like, how, I don't know what How far about. into the bush did you run? <laughs> yeah, how did yeah. you call for, did they have a phone? Like, did you have a, you know, those straps you people used to use for their cell phones in, like, the late 2000s? <laughs> like, boy, like, where was the phone? Uh, look, all I'd say is, too, is, like, I, you know, I would be much more afraid. And maybe I'm revealing my own, like, bug. Fo- and to be clear, I don't nude some, somebody. But if I was naked, um, I would be more afraid of like the kind of bugs and shit that would crawl on you in the, in the like whatever jungle. Oh, my God. Into, yeah. Then some deer on the fucking beach. Like, no I way. Just don't, uh, like there's a lot of questions here that need to be answered. I mean, yeah, give, hopefully, me, give me hopefully, sand. As I would say, hopefully people are on top of this. There's oversight. There's some public attention. There's some press attention on this. Yeah, we're gonna have to report back to the listeners. Yeah. Um, OK, well, I guess, uh, you know, that was a great, great section. I like that a lot. Uh, when we come back. Stick around for this, please. You will hear my interview with Matthew Barzin, the former U.S. ambassador to Sweden and the U.K. You'll hear tons and tons of fun stories about what it's like to be an ambassador, meeting the queen, all kinds of great stuff. So stick around for that. I am thrilled to welcome to the show the former U.S. ambassador to both Sweden and the United Kingdom and the author of the fantastic new book, The Power of Giving Away Power, which I'm holding up for some reason, even though it's an audio format. (laughs) Uh, My friend, Matthew Barzin. Matthew, it's so great to see you. Tommy, thank you for having me. So what's funny about this is that Folks who regularly listen to the show have probably heard your name a lot of times because whenever Ben and I talk about how like there's career foreign service officers and there's others who are who come from outside the foreign service and how they can be great, you are quite literally the gold standard. We talk about you, Mike McFall, uh, 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 Dan Shapiro, and so I was just hoping we could start there with with some of your ambassadorial experience because I just think it's so great to demystify like. What do these guys do? What do these men and women abroad do? So, well, you first ser- of all, thank you for the thank you for the compliment uh, to you and Ben, and putting me in the company of those guys. I'll take it. <laughs> well, I don't know that I deserve it, but I will take it. I mean, listen, that McFall might know Russian, but I think you could argue that your embassy was a better hang <laughs> than uh, than Spaso House or whatever. So, so you served in these two different posts: ambassador to Sweden, ambassador to the UK. You wrote in the book uh, that your your mantra, your watchwords were listen and whiskey. Uh, how did that guide your approach? How did that make you a good ambassador? Well, uh, the the listen part comes from just a super simple bit of advice. I I, uh, I went into the West Wing right before I went to Sweden. I got to sit down with newly elected President Obama. I was kind of nervous. I mean, obviously, I knew him from the campaign, but he was president now. Yeah, it got and weird. All you guys. And all you guys were there, and I'll never forget it because it's like I loved you guys, and you were like my young campaign friends. Um, but you were all wearing ties, and you yeah. were kind of like pulled together and kind of quiet, you know. Yeah, and I'd always seen you in Iowa or wherever, and it was just mayhem in a, in a fun way. Everyone was super quiet. Anyway, I get in there, and I've seen it like a zillion times on the TV show The West Wing, and it looks just the same. And I sit down. And I'd flown up uh, from Kentucky, where I'm talking to you now, which is home. And uh, anyway, we do the chit-chat thing. And then I basically just said, hey, Mr. President, what what advice would you have for a first-time ambassador? And he said, well, Matthew, uh, listen. And I had my little moleskin trendy notebook out. And I was like ready to write down all his pearls of wisdom. Uh, and that's all he said. 
<laughs> so it took me a second. It was like this awkward pause. And I was like, oh, right. The advice is listen, not listen right. to all my great advice. So I tried to right. do that. And then the whiskey piece is my late father-in-law, who's this wonderful man, uh, Owsley Brown, and he ran a whiskey company, uh, worked there his whole life. And he described to me, he's like, hey, three things to make whiskey. Step one, fermentation, right? And w- what it's called is beer, but not the kind you can drink. Step two, distillation. We know what that is, right? And he said, and then the trick question was like, well, what is step three, right? And I fell for the, and I was like, aging. You know, he's like, not quite. It's called maturation. It's not just time. It's time in the barrel going in and out, uh, hot, cold. And it's that final stage that turns what looks like vodka at the end of stage two into delicious looking whiskey with character, color, character, and complexity. So I thought, okay, heading into diplomacy, um, how do you turn, with no disrespect to Mike and our vodka drinking uh, friends, <laughs> you can make vodka in an afternoon, right? Whiskey takes time and it takes time of like good news, bad news, agreement, disagreement. Mm-hmm. Don't be freaked out about disagreement. It helps make whiskey. That was sort of the, the theory anyway. I love that. And also, you know, that that sort of, you know, Closing loops is sort of a theme in the book, right? Like you talk about how jokes are not a joke unless someone laughs. Uh, you need that feedback loop. And so I want to get into that more because there's a really interesting sort of philosophy for how to to do the job of ambassador and a philosophy for how to sort of be a good manager, frankly, in anything. But um, could you give us just a sense of like, what is the day in, in the life of an ambassador like? Or maybe like a representative sampling of things you did in a week in London, Sure. Let's take a day. I think a day is okay. pretty good. Because um, I remember I had no idea what the job was. I mean, I was 30, I don't know, what, 35 or something, maybe 36. I don't know. Now I'm 50. So it feels like I was super young, uh, even though uh, you guys were properly young. Um, there's a wonderful guy, Republican friend of mine, worked for Colin Powell named mm-hmm. Walter Kansteiner. And in the weird days of like Washington after a new administration gets in, Everyone's just sort of, it's not us at our best, right? Everyone's kind of scrambling to like figure out what they're going to do. And like, it's weird. So the only person I could get, it's gross. I mean, it's just gross. And I was part of the grossness. I mean, let's be clear. Everybody Um, was, yeah. But this new friend of mine, Walter, took me under his wing and he just sort of told me what the job was about. It was unbelievably helpful. And I'm forever indebted to him. And he, um, so he sort of described it, but the way, so then I get there and I actually do the job. And one of the wonderful traditions at the State Department, uh, not limited to the State Department, but I'd never seen it in my dot commy world before, was you'd, they'd print your Microsoft Outlook schedule on like a little uh, index, like three by five index right. cards, and everyone right. had them, you know, in their jackets or whatever. And so I would be given one every morning. I was like, oh, how nice. And then I had them color coded. So this is the long-winded answer to your question. No, um, no. And I remember the code. It was like, um, uh, it was uh, blue for kind of classic diplomacy, like go talk to the people at the foreign office about, you know, something you and Ben were working on, you know. Um, uh, green was uh, trade diplomacy. So like, you know, help sell airplanes or whatever to the British market. Um, and yellow was dealing with media. Uh, mm-hmm. which was sort of a not very funny joke about yellow journalism, but I had to pick a color. <laughs> and then uh, gray was sort of internal meetings. And then purple was cultural other. 
Uh-huh. And I think if you look at and any typical day would be sort of a rainbow of those colors. I guess gray isn't the color, but you know, that yeah. idea. And over the course of a week, and I would always sort of look, you know, if it was like way too much gray, something's wrong. And but but I think that that's sort of that's kind Got of it. a day in the life. So it's kind of like keeping that balance of official, fun, media, like that's an interesting way to do it. Um, I read that you once ordered up a briefing on the rules of cricket and that you uh, also used to post videos of yourself just butchering the names of, of villages in Welsh. Is, is that is that true? Well, I did because evidently Wales has the longest uh, word or the longest place name uh, in the history of the world, you know, I don't yeah. know who keeps track of these things. And it's like a tiny little town. And, and the, 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 on the train station, it's like, I don't know, like a football field long one name. And so I learned it in Welsh, which is like a, not, a not an original thing to do, but, uh, I did it and it was, um, yeah, I mean, I'm not going to do it here for you right now. Although <laughs> I, I, try to I, I, could. You. I, I don't think the world does are dying to hear Welsh. Maybe they are. They probably are, to be honest. Did you do you okay. understand cricket now? Did the briefing help? Uh, yeah. Well, we played cricket. We hosted in our backyard a cricket match between British broadcasters and American broadcasters. Oh, nice. Which doesn't sound like a fair fight, except almost everyone who works for like ABC, NBC, CBS, CNN are British. So right. we had it was just Brits against Brits with different brands, but it was really fun. That is really fun, and it's also just like that's a smart idea. Bringing a bunch of journalists to, you know, the ambassador's residence to get to know each other, to hang out informally, to like build relationships. Like that's being an ambassador. That's also being a smart press person. You know, I think like these little anecdotes are so instructive. One thing that will, I think, probably shock no one, right, is that there's there's a little bit of pomp and circumstance, especially in the UK. Uh, and there's yeah, this great, right. great scene in the book when you and Brooke had to present your credentials to Her Majesty the Queen. Uh, and, and you described this really, I think, surprisingly poignant interaction, which later got you in a little bit of trouble. Can you tell that story? Oh, right. Well, so it turns out <clears throat> you are never supposed to reveal. This just came up, I think, during President Biden's trip to the G7 and the bilateral oh, yeah. they did a couple of weeks ago. But anyway, it's a huge no-no to ever reveal uh, a private conversation with Her Majesty to the public. Well, I did. I'm going to do it again because double jeopardy, like, Whatever. I already did it. But the annoying part is, uh, so I did end up saying this story I'll tell you in a second uh, out loud. It showed up in the paper. So I had to apologize. And they were incredibly gracious. And it happens all the time, evidently. Um, but I have since been misquoted. Uh, now, no one particularly cares mm-hmm. about the comment I made, except that it has been in every single article about the royal wedding and about Harry and Meghan ever since. Huh. So here's what I misquoted as having revealed, and then I'll tell you the real story, and they couldn't be more different. The quote said, well, Ambassador Barzin um, reveals that the queen told him that she um, outlaws selfies Hmm. for the royal family. Like, okay, not at I mean, she may or may not have, but that's not what she told me. So we're sitting there. Yeah. So we, uh, speaking of pomp and circumstance, we get picked up at the American embassy in a horse-drawn carriage. (laughs) Um, My lovely wife, Brooke, looks beautiful. I look awkward. I mean, I'm wearing like a morning suit (laughs) and a top hat. And I challenge any man to put on a top hat and not feel like a total clown. Oh, yeah. Monopoly would be preferable. I mean, it's like bad Abe Lincoln. (laughs) It seems way too tall. Anyway, the good. so then you get 
driven into Buckingham Palace uh, on a horse-drawn carriage with all those tourists, right? So like thousands of tourists are always there. And then they see a cart and this might be like their lucky day. But then they see who it is and they have no idea. And they're like, are they royal? And then he'd be like, I don't think so. <laughs> and they're just like talking about you and, and snapping pictures, or whatever, hoping that that uh, that you're someone other than me. Anyway, you get there. And the best news is you get to take off your top hat. So uh -huh. that is just for the for the horse ride. Good, good. Then you go up, blah, blah, blah. You, you have your audience, which is what they call it, uh, with Her Majesty. And it's all going, look, she's so good at this. Right? She's done this a million times and welcoming each new ambassador from all around the world. And uh, she has been briefed about my background. So she knew I did dot commie stuff back in the 90s. So she's asking about the internet. And so I, in some way of answering the question, I said, well, um, what do you think about all those tourists? I just got to see what you do all the time, just coming through these throngs of tourists and having them all take your picture. What's that like for you? And she said, um, well, she said, you know, they always have taken pictures, but in the old days, and then she, it is tough on, this is bad radio, right? <laughs> um, but she holds up, you know, the old kind of cameras, like 35 millimeter cameras. She's right. like, they used to hold them up, click, and then she puts it down. Right. And then I was like, okay. And then she said, but now, and she takes her, her hand with a white glove and she puts it up in front of her face and holds it there while she's talking to Brooke and me. And she goes, and now they put up these phones and they put them up and they never take them down. And I miss seeing their eyes. And I thought that was so sweet. Here's the yeah. queen of England. And you think it's this one way thing, right? right? Like the tourist just snaps it and she is snapped. But yeah. to the point you made about a joke, it's like, it's a mutuality. Like it's a two way street. And I thought that was such a, sort of poignant moment of sort of a lament for these times we're in where we're totally connectable, but feeling really disconnected. So anyway, I said that out loud and I shouldn't have it and ended up in the paper. So that is the opposite of not letting you take selfies. It's like, I miss the connection with right. people I've never met and will never meet. And I think that's beautiful. I, I do too. And it's actually, and it's the opposite of what you'd expect. You would think that no one would mm. be more insulated from the isolating effects of technology than the queen of England but it's yeah. still affecting her too. I think that should probably tell us all something. Totally. Oh, I love that story. Um, so I just I have to flag for you that this is now the second firsthand queen story we've gotten on the show. I don't know. Has Ben Rhodes ever told you his? No. I I'll give you the quick and dirty. So Great. Obama trip, 2014. Last stop is Normandy. As you know, uh, sometimes you go out the night before the last night, uh, right? Because... That's what we do. So I think there was sort of a late night of, uh, <laughs> of merrymaking, drinking, whatever. So they get yeah. there to this D-Day anniversary event. You know, Ben's a little hungover. He's trying to hang back. Pete Souza runs in, grabs him. He's apparently Obama was talking to Putin about Ukraine as all that stuff heated up. So Ben sprints into this leaders-only area where he's probably not supposed to be, listens to this discussion. The discussion ends. And Ben's like, whew, man, like I'm sweating. I got to go to the bathroom, like get my shit together, like wipe off the sweat because <laughs> he's hungover. So he gets there, finds a bathroom door. Tries to open it, starts rattling oh, no. it. Starts no, 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 it. no, 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 no. He stands there oh, impatiently. Who walks out? <laughs> the Queen of England. <laughs> that is the best. Oh, he my said, gosh. He said she opened okay. the door. We have adjust, a winner. We have a winner. <laughs> adjusted her handbag, and he said she looked at him like he was the biggest fucking loser in the planet <laughs> and then walked away. Uh, or, or tied for it. Yeah. <laughs> That's it, so. fantastic. So you did a hell of a lot better job uh, in your diplomacy with the queen than Ben Rhodes did. So, you know, well, that's nice. Well, a low, a low bar to chin, but, you know. <laughs> you, you also talk in the book about how 
the British press was sometimes was like giddy to report on this faux pas, right? And like generally write about the demise of the special relationship. And that was my experience mm. too, from the location of the Churchill bust in the West Wing to like, I read an article where, you know, they quoted a bunch of, of British chefs giving you shit for saying that you were sick of eating lamb and potatoes. It's this like bizarre mix of maybe troublemaking or insecurity. Did, did you ever develop a theory of the case for why that happens? You know, it's funny. The the well, I think there's kind of a basic misunderstanding, which is that um, this is on the more serious thing, not the mm -hmm. stupid lamb and potatoes thing. Which, by the way, I probably deserved. Weirdly, I mean, granted, it didn't have to have like ten articles about it, but I sort of glibly was like, "Oh, I'm so sick of lamb and potatoes." And it's like it's kind of stupid to offend like the national dish of a country. It just it, like food diplomacy. It's like hating cheesesteaks in Philly or something. It's like true or lobster roll. Well, what would it be for us? We're or both John, John Kerry putting tomato on a cheesesteak in Philly, which actually happened in the two. I couldn't possibly campaigns. comment. I couldn't possibly <laughs> comment. But anyway, what it would be for us as as Massachusetts guys? Uh, you could say lobster roll. Yeah, fried clams. I don't know something. Mm. It's just not a great idea, and so I probably deserve that. But on the more serious ones, like six days after getting to London, you and Bennett, you were. You guys are debating about use of force, asking Congress for the Syrian civil war. Cameron calls back Parliament early, right, to have the same debate there. Mm -hmm. And uh, and he loses the vote. Yeah. And the front page of the Sun, which is the top circulation paper or was then, um, maybe still is, says death notice, special relationship, 67 years old, blah, blah, blah. And I think the misunderstanding is that the special relationship um, is is based on agreement. And that's where um, I think the whole whiskey thing comes in, right? It's like agreement and disagreement. Mm -hmm. And so special relationship, which I actually used all the time, even though everyone warned me that it's a cliche, uh, and it is a cliche and it's a worthwhile one if you kind of unpack it. It's like um, that the mistake we make is we think we do things together whether it's in places like Syria or on climate or coming up COVID, uh, global vaccination. It's like, we don't do things because we're good friends. We are good friends because we've done hard things together. Yeah. Right. I mean, those, and there's yeah. mutually reinforcing, like you said, but it, it's, it's not the, the friendship evolves out of hard work. Mm -hmm. And that's what excites me about the hard work ahead of our two countries right now. Um, because I think it can be sort of strengthened by that work. Yeah. I mean, it didn't start great. <laughs> we got off. No, you see, there we go. That's so good. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we had to celebrate uh, July 4th every year there. And it, it's it's a lovely tradition all around the world that embassies do that. And kind of awkward. <laughs> Slightly awkward. Where we are. <laughs> um, again, the book is The Power of Giving Away Power. And there, there's, there's sort of a philosophy that's embedded throughout it that I want to ask you about. But also just like amazing stories about your time in the U.K., and and also in Sweden. And I think one of the things that made you special, and it literally like was, it, it kept showing up in papers, was that, you know, you, you did have this sort of rainbow daily schedule where you had the official duties, but you really prioritized spending time with real people, especially students. Uh, and you write about how you ended up holding 200 listening sessions with, I guess, high school juniors. Is that what it was? Yeah. I mean, they call them sixth form colleges. So they're kind of 
we don't really have the equivalent here, but I would say high school seniors is probably okay. the closest we could okay. get age-wise. And, and like, it's, it's very funny you talk about in the book how you did like four of them and your staff is like, are we good? Are we done now? And you're like, no, 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 no. <laughs> Let me show you what good looks like. But you know, the thing that was really cool is like you ask them to name a thing that frustrates them, you name a thing that inspires them about America. And the things that frustrated these kids were guns, racism, and police brutality. I think those are the rankings. And obviously, yeah. like, those are not new challenges. In some cases, these are foundational problems mm. for this country, right? But it was interesting to me to read about how these kids in the UK, these like seniors in high school, were ahead of the curve when it came to the national conversation in the US because this is what, 2013 to 2017? Yeah. And so yeah. it's after Ferguson, it's after Newtown, but it's before Parkland, it's before George yeah. Floyd. And I just wondered yeah. what you made of that, like the sort of prescience from these kids. Well, it, it just like you said, I mean, it was, um, and it was sort of a tip I got from uh, inspired by my wife, Brooke, who you know, and who is a art therapist by training. So I was kind of like, I know these kids didn't want a freaking lecture from the American ambassador, right? But the reason we did it, um, which was Pew had come out with this big study, the wonderful study right as I arrived, 40 countries, sort of what we would call Western Europe in the old days, and Japan, Australia, New Zealand, all these countries. Every single country except for the UK, young people had a far favorable, a more favorable opinion of America than their parents and grandparents. So I was like, well, there's an opportunity. Um, mm -hmm. Let's go sort of engage with young people, which is what old people call people younger than them. <laughs> and so we do it. And so we didn't want to do a lecture. So we do this old thing where they get an index card. And I started, you know, a lot of people wrote words, but I started and said, please draw me a picture mm -hmm. of something that frustrates you or confuses you about America. So- after we started doing this, it was always guns, number one, racism, police brutality. And then we would also say, you know, flip over the card and write something that inspires you um, about America. And mm -hmm. there wasn't like a glaring one like guns. I mean, I have 20,000 index cards. So I did 200 schools, 100 kids at a time. So 20,000 index cards upstairs in my attic. 10,000 of those index cards have a sketch of a handgun. Wow. Right? Wow. I mean, and so, whoa. Okay. And so I had to get better talking about guns and I had to, which I wasn't really prepared to do. And so one big aha was not only were these kids wide awake and paying attention to what's going on in America, as I told my colleagues, and I remember telling Secretary Kerry and President Obama when he visited, like, our domestic policy is foreign policy. I mm -hmm. understand the distinction. And in your and Ben's old world, it's in mine as ambassador. It's like, look, we could talk about policy, Israel, Palestine, we could talk about surveillance and drones. And, and um, those things came up, right? right? Just not nearly at the level that these, what we would call domestic. That's such a good did. lesson. It's really an important lesson because you're right. I mean, there the, are these sort of artificial buckets of like the NSC does this, the domestic folks do that, mm. and it's completely intertwined. I actually think Biden is, I think, really trying hard to make exactly the case that you kind of outlined. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, it seems that way. Um, so, Matthew, one of the things that's it's so interesting about, to me about the book is that you're making this broader sort of philosophical case for giving away power, for encouraging collaboration, for like pushing for flat organizational structures. And you're doing so after spending several years in one of the most hierarchical, siloed, jargon-filled places on the planet, the State Department. Um, hmm. I, <laughs> Or are these yeah. lessons learned from that experience, the yeah. sudden trolling of the State Department? Like, what, what got you here? No, what made you want God, to write this? God, you're right. Well, Tommy, you know it, and Ben knows it so well. It, um, I have such deep love and hope for the State Department. So it is, it is the 
So in the book, I contrast it. For a while in my head, it was called the pyramid versus the constellation. I think for a bunch of good reasons, we didn't call it that. But it is these two symbols that are on the back of a U.S. dollar bill. They're two sides of our national logo. Um, pyramid representing consolidated power. It's the world of top down, but it's actually the world of bottom up also. Same shape, mm -hmm. different direction. Mm -hmm. uh, the world of the pyramid, consolidated power, lording it over others, hoarding it to yourself, whatever. And then this alternate view of looking at ourselves and people around us, which I call the constellation, which is right above the eagle's head. Uh, we can get into that later. But um, I really started writing it because I in, I just watched State Department's at Pyramid. I saw this when I was a dot-com person. We had a magical constellation that we sort of calcified into a pyramid. I saw it on political campaigns, the mm -hmm. magic constellation that was Obama 08, and then how it ran into Washington and what started to change yeah. and what 2012 was like. Very yeah. different campaign yeah. than 2008. Definitely. So just alive to how at big scales, but also just like in any meeting you're in, how energy is can be uh, kindled or it can be smothered whenever people are gathered. And like science tells us that there's the conservation of energy. Remember, we learned that in high school, mm -hmm. I think. Uh, maybe so, but not in the realm of human affairs. Yeah. Because it is killed and it's created wherever people are gathered. And I started to be really allergic to and hypersensitive really to just the devastating energy killing of the pyramid. Um, everywhere I looked uh, and saw a lot of it in diplomacy, the State Department at its best, and that's why I include that great Colin Powell story, I think, which uh, I got third hand. But the idea, basically, without retelling it, is is this idea of like, hey, in this town of Washington, like, what do you have that's special, right? What do you have that no one else has? And he's like, what does the Navy have? And his foreign service officers get the answer wrong. This is when he's Secretary of State, brand new. They say ships. He's like, Coast Guard has ships. A lot of people have ships. We have aircraft carriers. He's mm -hmm. like, oh, so what does the State Department have that no one else has? And they get the answer wrong, and they say the Harry S. Truman building. He's like, everyone's got a building. We have 240-something forward-operating bases for diplomatic engagement and walking these halls of Main State. You would never know it. Mm -hmm. And that, to me, is the, the opportunity of the State Department to realize that it has these amazing women and men spread out in interesting places, yeah. engaging, and not think that – you look at that building, it's like the top floor. It, is a, it should be shaped as a pyramid, wood-paneled seventh floor – where everything's fancy and the whole rest of it looks like a public mental health ward. <laughs> yeah, from the it's 50s. not the nicest building. <laughs> right? Just like super no. wide hallways for no, I don't just know weird. What. Just dour, yeah. sad kind of place sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. And but you're right though, because it's funny to me because I I think the media, government officials, others, like we 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 talk about prioritize sort of like lionize intelligence, but the, you yes. know, there is open source intelligence that's getting gathered in every single embassy through conversations with people. And you, when you look at like a lot of the big intelligence failures of the last few years, like, yes, there's nuclear programs that went missed or AQCon. But then there's also like the Arab Spring, where not enough people were mm. paying attention to how street vendors in Tunisia felt about the world and, and how that might might play out and, and lead to a government being toppled. Right. So it's like the work you're talking yeah. about, the people you're talking about are are really the key to, to fixing that problem. That's right. And I think if you have, I mean, the, the, the if you take that pyramid mindset, you just, 
you are factoring out uncertainty. That's why you do it. And you trade, you trade off, you just factor out so many people in, in trying to get predictability, which most of the time you can't get anyway. Right. And so, right. um, and, and if you think about just to get sort of American here about it, um, and obviously we have fallen so tragically short of this from the very beginning of our country and every decade since, um, but this idea, I think, of, you know, so from many one, e pluribus unum, is our motto. It is the thing written on the dollar bill or on our national logo right underneath the constellation. We're supposed to think of ourselves as from many stars, one constellation, not from many bricks, one pyramid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, although that would be, yeah. a, that's a way of, and in that world, in the pyramid world, you either fit in or you're left out, right? That's just the way it works. And in the constellation world, you can stand out, be a star on your own, and fit into something bigger than yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what I, that's the idea we're supposed to have in our minds. I I think that's right. Um, The other thing that you really uh, lay bare for state is just the the jargon is horrible. I just want to read a little passage from page 148 here. Uh, (laughs) This is from a briefing slide, a PowerPoint that I think was from from charm school, from your charm school. It was your two week briefing about how to be an ambassador. Basically, how do you, how would you describe charm school? Yeah. I mean, not living up to the name, a, a, um, (laughs) And it should. Like, I thought it was going to be, someone joked, it's like, oh, how to hold your, you know, teacup for the queen or something. It's none of that. It's just welcome to the bureaucracy and where you fit. At its worst. I mean, I'm being slightly unfair, but only slightly. Only slightly. So this is from a slide. Uh, All of you are in EUR. So if you have issues, you can ask your PDAS to consult with M about budgets. But make sure to go through IX slash IO. They are the gatekeepers. Unless, of course, R has extra money. It goes on. I mean... The jargon in government is is so painful. Do, I mean, I guess here's my question for you. Do you think there's a cost to sort of like talking like that? Like, yes. do we end up dehumanizing these discussions? I do. I do. I mean, I think, look, some of it isn't like we all do it, right? Um, uh, and it, some of it is is okay just to save time. Right. But then I think it crosses this line where it ends up being um, like bricks in a wall to keep other people out and to feel special and to just be part of the crowd. I mean, look at, I mean, just not our world or yours, but like financial, the whole world of Wall Street. I mean, this stuff is basically at some level pretty simple, like a lemonade stand. But the amount of jargon to make everyone else feel stupid and not welcome is horrible. Yes. And, and preventing people from even wanting to go into that whole profession. So we do it too. And it's it's why I think, and we get into it in the book with this woman, Mary Parker Follett, who we probably don't have time to talk about, but like we can start to change whatever organization we're in beginning tomorrow at the next Monday morning meeting. Yeah. Like just really because not using that kind of jargon, um, going in with different expectations and basically trying to make something together and stop trying to win meetings, stop trying to just acquiesce and let someone else win a meeting, stop even trying to compromise, which sounds crazy, but like really make a determination, make a whiteboard drawing, make something together. And if you do that, I think the the, the lingo and the jargon will start to fall away because you'll see it. It's like scaffolding. It's not actually... It might be useful for a little bit, but it should fall away. I agree. I mean, look, I, part of the conception of this show was one of my favorite things to do at the White House was 
some reporter would need to learn about Syria. So I'd find some really smart person at the NSC who could talk about Syria. I'd connect them on background and I'd mute the phone and listen, right? And like, it was just mm. sort of like my window into like gaining all this knowledge through osmosis. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the but the jargon can be so intimidating. It can make you feel like these conversations aren't for you, that you're not welcome in them mm -hmm. to begin with. And so I think like we try to imagine our listeners as being like a college sophomore taking an international relations show. So like, spell out the word. <laughs> you know what I mean? Skip the acronym. No. And you know who's great about this is President Biden. I, I just, when you were saying, I when he was vice president, we came back for St. Patrick's Day. And there's a tradition that the folks from Northern Ireland or the two different parties in Northern Ireland would, would come jointly and meet um, with him. And he obviously knows the issues he loves so it. well. And so we were having some meeting, I think right before that, it wasn't the official ones with the heads of the of, uh, uh, of that, but, and, and someone said, and it wasn't me mercifully, but I mean, easily could have been, right? Someone said Brexit. And this is probably 2014 or something. So it wasn't really common knowledge. It obviously hadn't happened yet. But he knew what it was, but he's like, cut it out. This is just America. I mean, this is just our team. He's like, stop, stop that. Right. Yeah, and that is yeah. like jargon. I mean, I've said the thing a thousand times. Me and too. It's like a little inward, you know, and you could just say when the UK decides or doesn't to leave the European Union, like, yeah, it yeah. takes a little longer, but yeah. And yeah, so he's very, I think, sensitive, and he's sensitive to that. And yeah, I'm sure is. from his youth of feeling excluded, and it makes you really aware. I think it's a, one of his many traits. There was actually an, an article recently about writing for him where his staff talked about how you basically get in trouble if there's a single acronym in his speeches because of the reasons you just talked about. I also, I, I have this like, really strong memory of one of the first uh, trips Obama did. We went out to Camp Lejeune, which was a, a military base in North Carolina. And he was announcing something about Iraq or Afghanistan. I'm, it's escaping me at the moment. And so um, after it was over, the Pentagon spokesman at the time kind of pulled me aside and we went and like grab box lunches and we sat down. I ended up eating lunch with Bob Gates, Secretary of Defense. And he asked me like, how's the job going? What do you know so far? And like, I was like, just brain fart, couldn't think of a single thing to say. And I just said, a lot of acronyms, sir. <laughs> and he laughed and the other guys laughed. He's like, yeah. He's like, you know what? I don't know what the hell most of them mean either, but I got the balls to ask in the meetings. And I was like, oh, that's great. You know, if-, if, if That's I, a great story. Yeah. If Gates if Gates has the the tenacity to say, pause, what does IXIO mean? You know, like yeah. speak English to the, the broader meeting. I still I have no idea, by the way. I still have no idea what IXIO means. Well, you're going to have to buy That's the, the book. only one. Yeah. You can <laughs> buy it to decode that. You have to um, buy the book because Matthew does translate it for you later. I was thinking about sort of getting more earthy, that like the opposite of jargon. And and I didn't put this in the book, but but we're both Red Sox fans, mm -hmm. um, which I think every every worldo knows. It's hard not to know with you guys, which is just beautiful. Keep <laughs> Keep telling it. So there's a bathroom somewhere on I-95 between Boston and New York where someone wrote very wisely, Yankees suck, uh -huh. right? Correct. And then someone came around and wrote, Red Sox suck. And it goes on and it takes up like almost two feet of wall space next to Jesus the mirror, Christ. right? Just scroll, everyone's scrolling out, right? Then this guy comes along. I don't know who he is. He has a green Sharpie and he circles the whole sort of rant and he writes, and we all love baseball. Now, th this is what I think w those of us who care a lot about diplomacy, like you and Ben do and I do and other listeners here do. 
I think that when I heard, you know, it's like, oh, like that's an, like we all love baseball, right? I have not been back to the bathroom, but trust me, I think there's lots of commentary on where Mr. Green Sharpie can put that pen. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yes. Because there's a way of talking about that that belies the fact it, it denies the legitimate tribal animosity between Red Sox and Yankees, which kind of makes it look like Mr. Green Sharpie doesn't even love or understand baseball himself if mm. he were to write that. Yeah. So when I think about diplomacy, not only international stuff, but domestic diplomacy, we don't use that term, but that's what I want to get involved with. Yeah, and politics, why, right? Why I, why I wrote this book. Yeah, yeah. But, but not sort of win-lose, like not just electoral fighting, which is important, sure. but like the kind of stuff that you and, and Ben and others did so well, uh, you know, actually working together, right, to deal with COVID vaccination relief. That's not a fight to be won it's a problem to be worked through. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, but anyway, so I thought about that bathroom wall and I was like, okay, so what, what I think we should write as someone who's trying to be constructive and trying to get people to engage and not just be in fight it out mode or sit it out mode is you would write, do you think the American league should eliminate the designated hitter? Question mark. And I just would wonder what, that is a legitimate conversation mm -hmm. that Red Sox and Yankees fans. And what would happen is, I mean, we can get out of the men's room now and and, um, <laughs> and think more broadly, that um, if you can get people engaged, discussing and debating um, games of the ru rules of the game they love, mm -hmm. that's how we can start to heal our democracy, I think. Yeah. Um, and we have, you know, I don't know. What do you think of that? I, I look. I think you're right. I mean, I think, in, in essence, a bit of what you're, you, what you could be literally talking about if we just tr translated this conversation is sort of reforms to the political process, like getting money out of politics, like reducing the influence of lobbyists, right? Like, I think that those are issues that pull at like 100. percent And the challenge is there's special interests that that help out either side and try to and prevent us from making any progress on them. It's incredibly frustrating. Mm. Yeah, no, I, I'm with you there. Um, one other question I wanted to ask you before, before we wrap, uh, you, you have this other sort of very fun kind of counterintuitive take in the book where there's this famous, 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 uh, Teddy Roosevelt speech about the man in the arena that you had to memorize and you had recited at various important events. And then you reveal that you kind of hate it. <laughs> Can you tell us why? Yeah. So it's, it's the one that starts, uh, it's not the critic who counts. It's the man who's in the arena, whose face is marred with dust and sweat and blood, blah, 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 blah. Okay. Um, and as you said, my, my uncle made me memorize it when I was 11 and I, I'm glad I did. And he made me recite it at my wedding. Uh, and like every time we're gathered and I, I just do it cause he was an awesome uncle to me, is an yeah. awesome uncle to me. Um, now I, I'm about to say this at the risk of losing a bunch of worldos here. I have to acknowledge that it is, um, like president Obama read it at McCain's funeral in one of the most beautiful eulogies and yep. one of the rare bipartisan moments of the last decade. Yeah. Um, Brene Brown, whose work I adore, it inspired the title of every book she's written. Hmm. LeBron James has in the arena etched into his basketball shoes. I mean, so these are some amazing people who love yeah. the love the phrase. And I get it, right? And I think it is not helpful for where we are now because it's fundamentally a gladiatorial framing. It is go into the arena and fight it out, win or lose. Um, 
sort of like win or die trying. And, and, and so you're either going into the arena sort of by yourself fighting it out, dust, sweat, blood, you know, or, you know, it starts with it's not the critic who counts or just be a bystander and sit on the sidelines. Mm-hmm. So your choices are fight it out or sit it out. Right. And that's it. And pick one. And given those two, I see why everyone's like, fine, I'll go into the arena. Right. But I think what, what we're, we're, we're willfully ignoring is a third option of, and it's not as clear cut as fight it out, sit it out, but it is play it through, work it through. I mean, how do we build arenas together? I mean, look, we got to make big things together. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a time for fighting, of course. Everyone on this listening to this podcast knows that. Um, but if you ask 10 people, and I did this, I mentioned this in the book, and everyone should try this. It's kind of a fun little parlor game. You ask 10 people, what's the opposite of winning? And then they all say, this is just a warm up. They all say losing. And you're like, yeah, I agree. What's the opposite of winning and losing? And nine out of 10 of us say, I don't know, uh, not playing, sitting it out. Nine out of 10. One out of 10 says playing, being, learning, loving, laughing, all the things we actually value in life, mm-hmm. right? Our relation, you can't win your relate, you can't win relationships, you right. can't win your career, you can't win parenting, and you can't win a marriage. You could lose one, but you can't win one. Right. And yet, nine out of ten of us think if we're not winning and losing, we are doing nothing. Yeah. And the happy bit and the encouraging part, I think, is that once the nine out of ten of us hear that other person who says playing or being or all those other things, you're like, oh yeah, yeah, right. There is more to it than that. Yeah. So that's my beef with Teddy Roosevelt. Um there's a time for fighting it out. And in our democracy, the critic ought to count. And I know they're annoying, but we have to factor in critics in everything we do. That's why we're a democracy. So, of yeah. course, the critic counts. Yeah. Yeah, no, it is definitely like a very self-aggrandizing way to frame one's own work and dismiss all the work and input yeah. from others. <laughs> like, to your right? point, you don't win COVID. We either work together and fucking prevent deaths or we, we don't. Yeah. It's not like I hate the winning losing framework. I, I picked up Politico this morning and had a list of winners and losers on the bipartisan infrastructure bill. I'm like, God, for God's sake, guys, you know, yeah, that's it. It's roads and bridges. Exactly. So Security. it permeates everything. And, it, and it's not just sort of out there in the State Department. It's so tempting to point fingers. Right. It's like in there. And I think what that what that sort of nine out of ten of us saying, sitting it out when we're asked that question that that pyramid perspective lives in here in each of us and yeah. realizing that yeah. and then putting it away then leaves you open to looking at the world a different and I think better way in terms of the constellation. I, I totally agree. Well, I, I loved uh, reading the book, The Power of Giving Away Power. Uh, I love the the philosophy, the mindset. And also, I think people who read it will just really like the stories about working on the Obama campaign in 2008, Maybe less so in 2012 because I think you enjoyed it a little less. <laughs> Probably also love like you know hearing about you driving around in like a RV in Sweden, flipping pancakes for people as part of the diplomatic effort. So it's just I think it was a, a a really fun way to like learn about the details of what made you uniquely good at these jobs, and I think how we all could approach our jobs in a little more collegial uh, way. So great to have you on the show. I really appreciate it. Tommy, huge thanks for having me on. I love what you guys do. Thanks, man. Cheers. Thank you again to Matthew Barzin for doing the show. Thank you to the sunbathers everywhere for giving us great content, I guess. Anyone else we need to thank? Nude sunbathing world, though, content, you know. Um, 
I mean, it's just a bad concept. Like, there's some things that you don't want to burn and are pretty pale. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't like. I don't get. I've never quite gotten that. Um, you know, the, the, there's some things you just want covered. You know. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Especially in the forest. Anyway, <laughs> talk to you guys next week. Happy July Fourth. See ya. Pod Save the World is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our producer is Jordan Waller. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Yale Freed, and Phoebe Bradford, who film and share our episodes as videos each week. 